drink. Uh, nice little smoke here. Fantastic snack. Nice little drink. Sweet little sippy. A little bit of scotch. Ready to read. So tonight we're getting into chapter four of Whitney Webb's new book. And she is specifically diving into the life of Roy Cohn, Donald Trump's mentor, in this segment called Roy Rising. So if you didn't know who Roy Cohn was before, now you're going to know. You might also end up finding out why it's important. So. Without any further ado, let's get into it. This is, again, Chapter 4 of Whitney Webb's new book, uh, One Nation Under Blackmail, and from a segment called Roy Rising. And again, this is about Donald Trump's mentor. And a very creepy uh, Democratic lawyer. Both in one guy. All rolled into one man. So I'm going to get into that. And I apologize, this cigarette is just giving me a hard time. (coughs) Light it again here. So from chapter four of Whitney Webb's new book, One Nation Under Blackmail. This is a segment called Roy Rising about Donald Trump's mentor, Roy Cohn. Roy Rising. From a young age, Roy Cohn was known for being apt at the trade of human calculus of deal-making swapping, maneuver, and manipulation. By the time he was 12, for example, he was using his father's political connections to secure men jobs at the post office, collecting a finder's fee. Those who knew him all agree that he felt more comfortable in the presence of powerful businessmen and New York political power brokers than with children his own age. Despite being so different from other children, Roy Cohn developed a few close childhood friends some of whom would dramatically impact trajectory manipulate the media for political gain and for the gain of his clients here, who went on to oversee the Klond Nast Empire that now includes Vanity Fair, Vogue, GQ, The New Yorker, and many other publications. Edwin Weisel Jr., who became Assistant Attorney General under President Lyndon Johnson and whose father was a prominent lawyer in the movie business. And Generoso or Gene Pope Jr., who eventually ran the National Enquirer. John's aunt Libby Marcus stated that Roy had very few contemporary friends because even as a little boy, he had a party, if he had a party, There would be two youngsters, 
Generoso Pope, Gene Pope Jr., and Eddie Weisel Jr. Those were his two friends. Every time he had a party, he had these two contemporaries, and everybody else was somebody in politics or somebody with power, older. He didn't bother much with people his own age. Gene, like Roy... Who the fuck are we talking? Is this Gene and Roy from Should Have Been a Cowboy song? Is this for, is this the Gene and Roy from I Should Have Been a Cowboy? By Brooks and Dunn? <laughs> that song is never going to be. I've always wondered who the fuck he's talking about. And I think uh, it's just going to be these guys now for me from now on. All right. Sorry. Back to the book. Uh, Gene, Gene like Roy, had an insatiable interest in politics and more specifically the politics of power. He was the favorite son of Generoso Pope Sr., an immigrant who had famously come to the U.S. from Italy, essentially penniless and who'd risen to the top of New York City's and then the nation's concrete industry. Pope Sr. was a controversial man at the time due to his admiration and support for Italian fascism and his ties to Benito Mussolini as well as the Vatican, New York's top mobsters. Pope Sr. was also close to William Odour, the mob-linked mayor of New York who was also a friend of the Cohn family. Pope Sr. also had the ear of prominent U.S. politicians, including Democratic Presidents Franklin D. Roosevelt and Harry Truman, as well as Truman's Republican challenger and governor of New York, Thomas Dewey. Regarding the family's mob ties, Pope Sr. was particularly close to the Frank Costello, who he had known since his earliest days in New York and who'd shaped the trajectory of his business, Colonial Sand and Stone. By securing the most lucrative city contracts for concrete for Pope's company, the seemingly endless series of sweetheart deals led to Colonial led Colonial to become the largest concrete company in the country and allowed Pope Sr. its head to become one of the wealthiest legitimate businessmen with intimate organized crime ties. So close was the tie that Costello, who was the real-life inspiration for Vito Colorone, Corleone, Vito Corleone, the main character of the famous uh, Mario Puzo novel, The Godfather. So Costello, who is this Costello guy? Um, Frank Costello. Okay. So Frank Costello was the inspiration for the God guy from the Godfather, which is interesting. Um, keep that in your, in your hat there. So Pope senior was particularly close to Frank Costello, who he'd known since his earliest days in New York and who'd shaped the trajectory of his business, colonial sand into a major national company. So the seemingly endless series of sweetheart deals led Colonial to become the largest concrete company in the country and allowed Pope Sr. its head to become one of the wealthiest legitimate businessmen with intimate organized crime ties. So close was the tie that Costello, who was the real life inspiration for the main character of Vito Calderon, the main character of Godfather, was chosen to be Gene Pope's I'm sorry, Gene Pope Jr.'s actual godfather and served as his guide for years. Interesting. 
right, I gotta watch this movie again. I've never seen The Godfather. I'm about to. So Gene, after a brief stunt, uh, stint working with psychological operations for the CIA, got a loan from Costello to construct his own media empire around the National Enquirer. What the fuck? Gene Pope Jr.'s son, Paul Pope, described Costello's influence on his family as like a guardian angel, his power felt but unseen. This, this National Enquirer magazine, for those who are younger, was on every fucking store shelf. No one ever bought it. It was the weirdest thing. Completely in black and white. So the mafioso-style deals that brought the Pope family to prominence also became their modus operandi. Through his control of the city's concrete industry and the local Italian immigrant voting bloc through his essential monopoly on Italian language newspapers in New York. Wow. Pope was a force that major politicians and uh, any ambitious politician cannot afford to ignore. He operated through an elaborate system of quid pro quo that was later adopted by Roy Cohn, who called his own version of the system the favor bank. As Gene Pope Jr. later said of both his and his father's roles in New York and even national politics, we made deals. That's how judges got made, DAs, things like that. That's when you did all your talking. I mean, I did everything from fixing parking tickets to making judges. <laughs> Cohn, later on in his life, reminisced about his closeness to the Pope family, stating that virtually every Saturday night we would go out to dinner or have dinner at 1045th, and then Mr. and Mrs. Pope, Gene, and I would go and see a new Broadway show. So, according to Gene Pope Jr. and Cohn, Gene Pope Sr. served as a mentor to Cohn, who he admired for his magnetic personality. Cohn later said that he learned an awful lot about practical politics from Pope Sr., including the politics of the favor bank, and that the mob-linked businessmen had more to do with my incipient political career than any other single person. Pope Sr. certainly aided Cohn's rise in the world of lawfare, having pulled strings to secure the appointment of Irving Saple, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, where Cohn subsequently served as Assistant Attorney. According to Cohn, is cited by his biographer, Nicholas von Hoffman. <laughs> Saple's appointment as U.S. attorney was thanks to the influence of an odiferous triumvirate of Pope Sr. Carmine DiCipio of Tammany Hall and Frank Costello. Saple's focus on prosecuting communists led to Cohn's now infamous role in the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg and shortly thereafter the McCarthy hearings. Interesting. So it was Roy Cohn's oddly cozy relationship with J. Edgar Hoover described in Chapter 2 that was the deciding factor in Cohn's appointment as 
McCarthy's chief counsel during the controversial anti-communist hearings. So just so we get this straight, guys, uh, Roy Cohn's oddly cozy relationship with J. Edgar Hoover was the two of them, along with Louis Rosenstiel, having sex with underage male prostitutes, uh, like I said, along with uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, dressed as a woman named Mary. So I know that's a lot to unpack. I hope that makes sense. Um, but that was the deciding factor in Cohen's appointment as Joe McCarthy's chief counsel during the controversial anti-communist hearings. The position had nearly gone to Robert F. Kennedy, who was a lifelong rival and bitter enemy of Cohn's. With Kennedy attempting to nail Cohn on more than one occasion when he was attorney general during his brother's presidency, Though Cohn was ruthless and seemingly untouchable as McCarthy's counsel, having played a pivotal role in destroying many careers and lives during the parallel red and lavender scares, his antics in relation to his work on the committee eventually led to his downfall after he attempted to blackmail the army in return for presidential treatment or preferential treatment, I'm sorry, <laughs> for committee consultant and his rumored lover, David Shine, notably shortly before Shine became involved with Cohn and McCarthy, his sister, Renee Shine married Lester Crown, the future mega group member and son of the super mob linked Henry Crown discussed in chapter one. So, while Cohn failed the power play with the army, Cohn's failed power play with the army was his most well-known attempt to use blackmail during this period. He was also known to have used blackmail of various sorts to target diplomats such as Charles Thayer, the U.S. Consul General in Munich. After Thayer's brother-in-law, Charles Bolin, was nominated for an ambassadorship by Eisenhower, both Thayer but not especially Bolin were uh, hated by the McCarthy at right, despite there being no solid evidence of communist affiliations in either case. Cohn had learned that during a stint in Mexico, Thayer had produced an, a son with a Mexican woman who he'd briefly married and then divorced. Cohn threatened to inform Thayer's aged mother of this long past affair by shoehorning it into public confirmation hearings of Charles Bolin who had been nominated to serve as U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. Thayer, fearing that news would greatly distress his elderly mother, chose to resign from the State Department. Thayer, fearing that the news would greatly distress his elderly mother, chose to resign. Wow. Wow. For that, what a coward. What a coward. See, it's only cowards who enable sociopaths like Roy, Roy Cohn to exist and continue. So, uh, I'll, uh, you know, some people call them hypocrite bitches. Other people might say these are people that lack ethical morality um, and uh, or ethical bravery. Cohn, Roy Cohn, also likely used blackmail obtained by other means, given that he had already become involved with the Rosenstiel-linked sexual blackmail operation during this period. As discussed in Chapter 2, this operation was allegedly tied to the anti-communist hunt of the period, and its apparent target, homosexual men, 
were also being hunted due to so-called lavender scare. Ironically, one of the main motives behind the lavender scare was the concern that closeted homosexuals were vulnerable to blackmail. Though the idea was that communists would use this information to subvert homosexuals in the U.S. government, the evidence suggests that it was the specific anti-communist group with which Cohn was directly affiliated, who were more adept at blackmailing these men. This group was also subversive given that their top men, homosexuals such as Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover and Cohn, were entangled with a compromised, entangled with and compromised by organized crime. After all, it had been Hoover's FBI and the Catholic Church, dominated by Cohn's pal Cardinal Spellman, that had originally backed and legitimized McCarthy and his now infamous witch hunt. Like Hoover, <clears throat> so let me just check on you guys and see if there's anyone with any questions or comments. Nope, just me reading to myself. That's fine. Um, call me crazy. So, like Hoover, Cardinal Spellman, the Archbishop Archbishop of New York from 1939 until his death in 1967, was incredibly powerful. As <clears throat> Jean Pope Jr. Roy Cohn, as Jean Pope Jr. Roy Cohn's lifelong friend later recalled, "You couldn't get a job in New York without Spellman's okay." Before anybody had a uh, Chinaman's chance, it had to be cleared by Spellman. He controlled everything with an iron fist. He controlled the legislature. He controlled the city council. He controlled everything. Spellman was very much a control freak, having been known to interpret any sign of opposition to his will as a sign of communist subversion. Also like Hoover, Spellman's power was likely the main reason why he was able to keep the facts about his homosexual life under wraps. Spellman's double life not only allegedly involved the blue suite parties at the Plaza Hotel, but also included private sex parties at his mansion. Even Spellman biographer John Cooney had, had to acknowledge Spellman's private life, writing, uh, in New York's clerical circles, Spellman's sex life was a source of profound embarrassment. There were stories about his seducing altar boys and choir boys. He had his favorites among handsome young priests and was known to have lovers outside the clergy. One interesting anecdote shared by Cooney relates to a choir boy who had a relationship with Spellman and who was particularly vocal about it. A man named C.A. Tripp, who later became a sex researcher for the con controversial Alfred C. Kinsey, stumbled on this relationship by accident after he met the choir boy who was bragging about his tryst with Spellman. Tripp was stunned the powerful cardinal was not more discreet about his dealings. Tripp asked the boy to speak. Uh, sorry, Tripp asked the boy to ask Spellman why he was not worried that the news would get out and harm his reputation. The boy returned several days later and responded, the archbishop says, who would ever believe that? <laughs> It seems that Spellman was confident that his powerful position would shield him from any real scrutiny, allowing him to carry on his sex life as he saw fit. As Rod Dreher of the American 
conservative wrote in a 2019 article that detailed various anecdotes about Spellman's uh, double life. Cardinal Spellman was a confident. Oh, sorry. Cardinal Spellman was confident that he would never be outed and that if someone tried, no one would believe it. And they wouldn't have until today. As previously noted, Spellman was alleged to have been seen at the Blue Suite parties at the Plaza Hotel. While Spellman and Hoover apparently had similar and potentially connected private lives that carried the risk of exposure, it seems that only the latter was blackmailed. Such blackmail was not only wielded by organized crime interests to protect their rackets from FBI meddling, but also by American intelligence agencies. According to David Talbot, the Devil's Chessboard, McCarthy's efforts to target CIA analyst and CIA director Alan Dole's ally William McBundy in mid-1953 led to Dole's to put the squeeze on Hoover, who, despite having expressed doubts about McCarthy's campaign at this time, continued to feed the Wisconsin Senator and Roy Cohn a stream of damaging information on his Washington enemies. Doles himself, the subject of a thick dossier kept in Hoover's office that documented his adulterous trysts, made sure the CIA maintained the blackmail on Hoover, including that which had been shared between OSS veterans, most likely James Jesus Angleton and Meyer Lansky years earlier. As Talbot notes, the CIA counterintelligence chief, J.J. Angleton, was rumored to occasionally show off photographic evidence of Hoover's, Hoover's intimate relationship with FBI Deputy Clyde Tolson, including a photo of Hoover orally pleasuring his longtime aide and companion. While one of Alan Dole's mistresses was known to refer to Hoover as the Virgin Mary in pants, Doles had also occupied a lengthy dossier on McCarthy's sex life, which included allegations of homosexuality. Talbot details those allegations. The senator who relentlessly hunted down homosexuals in government, i.e. McCarthy, was wildly rumored to haunt the bird circuit near Grand Central Station as well as gay hideaways in Milwaukee. Drew Pearson got wind of the stories and was never able to get enough proof to run with them. But the less discriminating Hank Greenspun, editor and publisher of the Las Vegas Sun, who is locked in an ugly war of words with McCarthy, let the allegations fly. Greenspun had been given access to the Pearson files and Pearson files, and he had picked up his own McCarthy stories involving young hotel bellboys and elevator operators during the senator's gambling trips to Vegas. McCarthy is a bachelor of 43 years, wrote Greenspun. He seldom dates girls, and if he does, he laughingly describes it as window dressing. It's common talk among homosexuals who rendezvous at the White House in, in Milwaukee that Senator Joe McCarthy is often engaged in homosexual activities. In the world of Beltway blackmail, these allegations of McCarthy's homosexuality were dismissed by those in Hoover's inner circle, as Hoover had also compiled his own set of secret files on McCarthy's sex life, should he ever need it. Instead, Hoover's secret sex files were alleged to contain a series of disturbing stories of McCarthy drunkenly going to young girls, which was a regular, allegedly so frequent that they had become common knowledge around the Capitol. Talbot quotes Walter uh, Trohan, Washington bureau chief of the Chicago Tribune, who witnessed McCarthy molest one such girl, saying he didn't he just couldn't keep his hands off young girls. Why the communist oppression opposition didn't plant a minor on him and raise the cry of statutory rape, I don't know. 
Yet, as previously discussed, it appears that the anti-communist forces that surrounded McCarthy as opposed to the communist opposition was the side that most readily engaged with such operations. And it is entirely possible that McCarthy could have been targeted and trapped by some of his ostensible allies, given that he wielded considerable power and his indiscretions were said to have been wildly known in those circles. For Dole's part, he didn't need to plant a miner on McCarthy as the compendium of stories and his actions alone was enough to give the CIA director leverage over the senator. As a result, uh, Talbot states that uh, there was an explosive sexual subtext, explosive sexual subtext to the CIA's power struggle with McCarthy. One of them that was largely hidden from the public, but would eventually erupt in the Senate hearings that brought him down. Though it's debatable as to whether McCarthy's struggle with Dole's provoked his undoing, their scuffle did mark his first major failure and was a turning point in his anti-communist campaign. It would be the relationship between Roy Cohn and David Shine, the chief consultant of McCarthy's committee, who had been described by one Cold War historian as Roy Cohn's dumb blonde, that became the deciding factor behind both McCarthy's and Cohn's fall from grace. Though some Cohn biographers have cast doubt on the claims of a romantic relationship between Cohn and Shine, other historians of the period treated as fact. There's really no way of knowing one way or the other aside from a series of anecdotes that have been the subject of speculation for, at this point, several decades. For instance, during Cohn's and Schein's infamous European tour, the German press reported the two men's flirtatious antics at a hotel lobby, while also describing how the pair had left their hotel room in a shambles after a vigorous round of horseplay. Uh, Von Hoffman, who dismisses the homosexual relationship between Cohn and Shine in his book Citizen Cohn, nevertheless notes some eyebrow-raising stories. One such story that had been reported in time revolved around how Shine and Cohn would fly down to Washington from New York on Monday, take adjoining rooms the Statler Hotel for the week, and fly back on Friday night for a weekend of night clubbing. On one occasion, the Statler did not have the adjoining rooms for the two men, instead only having two single rooms that were not connected. It was Shine, as opposed to Cohn, who then provoked quite a hassle in the lobby as he roared his disapproval. At the very least, even if there was no sexual relationship, the evidence points to Cohn having been enamored with Shine to the point that he was willing to aim the full force of the McCarthy machine squarely at the army after Shine, who had been drafted in 1953 was due to be shipped overseas. Cohn's reported response to the news was, well, wreck the army. The army will be ruined. If you pull a dirty, lousy, stinking, filthy, shitty double cross like that, the targeting of the army did lead to ruin, just not the armies. Eventually, and with the full approval of the Eisenhower administration, the army responded by compiling the Shine Report which revealed all of the ways that Cohn and McCarthy had sought to blackmail the army to secure special privileges and favors on Shine's behalf. This led to the now infamous Army-McCarthy hearings in 1954, which ultimately ended McCarthy's reign and humiliated Cohn to such an extent that it would overshadow him for the rest of his career, long after he left Washington. The intensity of the controversy would also provoke the disillusion of the close relationship between Cohn and Shine. What is undeniable about the whole affair is that it reveals how blackmail 
particularly sexual blackmail, had become a major, if even if largely invisible, force in American politics. So there you go. There's that whole section. Absolutely fascinating.、Um, amazing that so much of this is just kind of,、uh, you know, damn near open news, and just a. Control over the media is enough to confuse the whole country and make them forget this incredibly、um, interesting piece of American history. Aw, Lance, I am a lonely fuck. Look, it's just me reading. Apparently, I'm the only one that finds this material interesting. Woe is me. I guess I'll just have to have a nice little snack and smoke a bowl. Go hang out with some girls later. There's three girls I was supposed to hang with tonight, but couldn't find a place to play music. So.、Um, No big deal. We'll do it later this week. But、uh, you stay cool, Lance,、uh, and、uh, the rest of Colin. You guys、uh, stay cool. <laughs>